You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad to have you here with us today, and we have an incredible guest today. He is a citizen of the world. You're going to hear about this. And I love when I was speaking with my new friend, Guillaume Vialinix, when I asked him, how do you want to be introduced? I loved how he said, you know, I became in love with the difference. And what he meant by that is he fell in love with people who were different than him. And you're going to hear about how this impacts his company today. That company is MedTech Momentum. They become the marketing department or an extension of the marketing department for some of the most exciting medical companies in the world. They are doing some really incredible work because it's one thing to have an idea in the medical space. It's another thing to actually build a product. But if nobody knows about your product or your story about how it's going to change people's lives, it really doesn't matter. So they fulfill that critical function. So Guillaume, we are so thankful to have you here today and we're going to hear all about your story and MedTech Momentum. So thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. You know, Guillaume, our listeners love to hear people's stories and you didn't actually grow up in America. In fact, you were raised in Normandy on the beaches of D-Day. I mean, this is truly incredible. So let's start there. Tell our listeners about growing up in Normandy, France, and how that came about to you actually building an incredible business in America. Yeah. So growing up in Normandy is is actually interesting because, as you know, Normandy is, some would say, in the middle of nowhere. It is three hours away from Paris, but it's really the countryside. But if you are in Normandy, you're fully aware of the world because... If you're like me and you go to the beach on Sunday, you're actually looking at, you know, pieces of material that were put there during, during D-Day. And my city was actually, you know, half of it was the Caen, which is the city of Caen was destroyed. Half of it was destroyed on D-Day. So you're very aware of global dynamics of the world. Like something happens, can happen to you locally from other country and the world matters. So I didn't speak a word of English really until I was 17, but I was aware of America. I was aware of the power of America. I was aware how America could change the world. I discovered not just the military side, but even the culture, the Beach Boys and Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe. They were part of, of my life. And again, I would like sing songs, American songs without speaking English, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. But I thought it was the coolest thing in the world to be American. So many Americans actually think the French don't like them for some reason, that there is this I wouldn't say that. I said the French are very aware that they owe their freedom to America <laughs> and to D-Day and to everything that happens after that. That's incredible. So what actually brought you to America when you were 17 years old? Yeah. So when I was 17 years old, you know, I graduated from high school. My father was a physician. He was an oncologist. And for me, obviously, the father being a physician and working very hard and treating sick, very sick patients in his case. I thought it was the most horrible thing you can do. I and mean, who wants to go into medicine? You deal with sick people all day and how depressing it is because you tell us about sad stories. Obviously, I completely changed my mind since then, but that was my, my initial thoughts. When I graduated from high school, I said, I need to do something different. I need to 
at least speak a language. <laughs> so I took one year off and came to America. And I came with an organization that was sending French students to the U.S. And it turned out that it was in a little town in America that I couldn't pronounce called Tallahassee. Tallahassee, Florida. Tallahassee, Florida. Wow. And I looked, I remember looking, and no internet, I remember at the time. I was looking, I had like brochures and stuff. What, they have a stadium that is bigger than the French National Stadium, the Parc des Princes, and they have a TV station, a radio station, and a theater school. What is this? That didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> but I went. And what year was this, G? Yeah, now I'm aging myself. It was in 83. Okay. So 83, no computers. I mean, computers were just arriving. Students didn't have computers yet. So I actually witnessed, you know, the first computer revolutions going from, you know, you use a computer by going to a lab and doing your homework on the FSU campus to actually having a computer in your apartment, which I was one of the first students among my friends to have actually his own computer. I grabbed the technology as soon as I could. And so you came over initially thinking, I'm taking a year off. I'm going to learn English. And that turned into a lifetime. Yes. And in the introduction, you mentioned my love for the difference, but this is really exactly the way it happened. I, I could tell you, you know, in August 27, 1983, it was my first day in the US and I went to a party. And that party was organized kind of for the French, the little group of French students coming to the US to learn English. And I met people from all over, all over South America, Central America, different parts of the world. Because they were actually curious to meet us. <laughs> and I was very curious to meet them. So I said, this is great. I mean, you know, what? look at all these people. They have such interesting stories. And what brought them here just like me? And then there was a common thread in my life at the time, which I didn't mention, was tennis. I was a competitive tennis player. I immediately connected with the FSU tennis team from all over the world also. And the next thing you know is, uh, you know, have a, 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 you know, a, a meeting the next day to play with one of the guys on the team. And then I realized how good they are. <laughs> I said, oh my God. I mean, actually two of them turned pro. One of them beat McEnroe, you know. So I'm suddenly, you know, in that huge campus with 60,000 students, you know, playing tennis with great players that I couldn't even play with if I was in France, actually. The weather is beautiful. Life is great. What else? <laughs> what else? And meeting the, all those students with incredible stories in that little town named Tallahassee. So when I saw it's a love story, it was really a love story, falling in love with the whole environment and embracing it rather than judging it as always oh, different from, you know, my experience in France. I was like, oh no, there is so much to learn by interacting, you know, with these people in that very unique environment. So how soon did you know you wanted to stay? It took me six months to realize that it's basically my future. The first three months, I was lost. I was trying to figure it out. Tennis kind of saved me because I was always playing tennis with the guys. But after six months, I actually met a friend of mine. His name is Jorge. I hope he will be listening to that podcast. He's, a, he's actually in, in finance. <laughs> he's from Chile. And he's the one who really, he was already in the US for a month, for a, sorry, a year, and introduced me to the campus. And he was studying business and he told me, so why don't you come to classes with me on campus? And this is the classes I'm taking. This is what I'm doing and kind of show me the ropes. And I say, wow, this is great. You go to these huge business schools and they have those beautiful amphitheaters. You're learning about, I mean, words that I didn't know, like marketing. I mean, in France, in 83, you didn't talk about marketing. <laughs> Sales was a bad word. <laughs> you know, marketing, 
didn't even exist really. And then suddenly you're, you're talking about marketing and it's creative and you have all these possibilities. And I attended some of the classes with him and I realized, why not? Why not? If I actually studied there, I could graduate with a diploma. It would be worth something. Because remember, if you're a French kid from Normandy, if you don't study in Normandy or maybe in Paris, you don't have an education. <laughs> so I had to tell my parents, it's okay to study in the U.S. and I'm going to actually have an education and maybe hired by a company one day. And they had to trust me on this because no one in my family had ever done it. That was my question, Guillaume, is when you called home to talk with your parents and say, uh, you know, I was coming here just to learn English, but now I want to stay. How did that phone call go? I mean, my parents are incredibly uh, unique and exceptional and loving. And, and because it was really about, if you think it's best for you, we'll trust you, trust your judgment and support you. It was, I mean, that was an emotional side. That was, I was not going to come back. And remember, no internet, no FaceTime, nothing. I mean, one phone call a week. I mean, that's all you got, you know. And then, you know, I trust that you're going to really, you know, we're going to help you financially to pay for your school, which was also a sacrifice. You know, it's, it's a lot more expensive than if I had stayed in, in France, where education is free. We just celebrated my parents' 60 years anniversary a year ago, and I made a, a speech during that time and to tell them, you know, how much I love them and how much I appreciate what they've done, because it, it's amazing. I don't know that many parents would have taken that chance. Again, at that time, now it's, it's kind of normal. You go to another, another country, but in 83, you didn't just send your kid to you know, another country in a place that you don't know, he doesn't speak the language. What's going to happen? I mean, the risk seems to be pretty high. <laughs> Tallahassee, Florida also. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm sure not many of their friends had even heard of. So No, nobody. Nobody. Oh. Could. <laughs> no, right. it's uh, especially when I would tell people it's the capital of Florida. Like, what? It's not Miami or Orlando. It's Tallahassee. I say, yeah, it's Tallahassee. <laughs> so did you end up playing tennis or just recreationally? Yeah, it was just recreational. I mean, I, you know, I could compete with the worst, worst, worst guys on the team, <laughs> but uh, you know, it was untouchable to get really to the level where you have a you know a full scholarship. And like I said, I mean, one of them was Paul Harris. You know, on the team he ended up being twenty five in the world, number two in doubles, beat wow. McEnroe at his first US Open. It was at the end of McEnroe's career. You know, number two also turned pro, one hundred twenty in the world. Uh, so there, there were a bunch of players that were really, really good. I mean, to these days, you know, they, they produce some great players. So, but the good thing is, I was mixing with them. We live in the same place, actually. It's called, called Spanish Oaks. So, you know, all those guys, were, most of them were actually living there. So, you know, we would play, then go to the pool, then play again, then, you know, go see them compete. It was great. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> That's incredible. So, Guillaume, I actually played tennis only in eighth grade. It was my last year of middle school in the States, played tennis, and we went undefeated our entire season. I played doubles. We were first team doubles. We were undefeated the entire season. We were playing against some of the best schools in Ohio, schools that would normally beat us. And I mistakenly thought I was pretty good. And (laughs) it turns out my doubles partner was this just freak athlete, just freak of nature athlete. And he went on to play tight end for the St. Louis Rams. So it was my partner, Mike, that was really, really good. It was not me. I was just there to play a supporting cast for Mike. But it was an incredible experience. I do think, you know, it's really important in that life story. 
coming to the US and going to Florida State University. And, and really the reason I fit in very quickly is because of tennis. Not because I was good. I was never going to be a pro. I knew I, I couldn't touch those guys, but I had the passion. I had the power of the passion that gave me an identity and was d- driven me. So, and again, not because I was competing at the highest level, just because I was playing every single day. And once in a while, I played a little local tournament and that was good for me. And you made, you made friendships from that? And yeah, my whole life was really because of that. I mean, you know, in tennis at FSU, even later on, that actually tennis brought me into the medical device space 25 years ago because I met a, a person on my tennis, my local tennis team in Orlando that turned out to be, you know, in, in the industry. So, it's like you don't need to be a pro <laughs> to live your passion to the fullest and that passion transform your life for the good. I think that's what I try to teach my kids and everybody I know is whatever can give you an identity quickly in your life will help you make the right decisions and, and avoid many mistakes and create the bubbles of happiness that are very important as you grow. Well, this is an incredible segue, Guillaume, because you know you're you're at the University of Florida. You learn about marketing and other business concepts, and eventually that brings you over into the medical ecosystem. So, how did that part occur? It was actually a journey. I did not get in from school to medical. Actually, a kind of between my bachelor's degree and my MBA, I actually did some internships with G Medical and Pasteur Institute in France. So that was actually an introduction for a year. I took another year off. Seems like the story of my life, I take years. Before I did an MBA, I wanted to make sure I had some real life experience, which really I didn't. I was very, very innocent. And because of, again, some you know, connections we had in Paris and in France, I was able to connect with G Medical, which was interesting. It was at the time of Jack Welch. And so I did that for, for six months, actually. And then I did another internship for another six months with Pasteur Institute, which had just invented the vaccine against hepatitis. And, and you know Pasteur. I mean, it's, it's an incredible story in the medical world. So now I suddenly I, I was falling in love with the industry. I said, oh, wow, this is great. You're actually changing lives. You're actually impacting the world. I love to do this. But I had no credentials. I mean, I was I didn't study biology or pre-med or medical school or nothing. So all the companies, when I graduated from my MBA, which is what at Thunderbird, which is part of Arizona State University now, all the companies that were giving me offers were not in medical space. So it was Disney, it was I mean all you know, different entities. And I chose a, a job with Cigna, the insurance company. The, U.S. monster that actually hired me and sent me back to Europe, to Brussels, to their European headquarters at the time. Working with Cigna, what was interesting is first I learned about corporate branding. I mean, when you work with Cigna, you understand what's a brand. (laughs) You work with the biggest agencies in the world, in Paris, in London, in New York, in Philadelphia, because the headquarters are in Philadelphia. I was actually educated by those agencies that, you know, that were telling me, you know, the value of a logo, <laughs> a color palette, a font. I mean, all these basic things that you kind of learn in school, but not really to the, you don't really get it until you do it. And then we were, I was also, you know, working on the partnership between Cigna and American Express. So Amex is also a very, very strong company in terms of branding. And I mean, it was intense the relationship. And that relationship led to Amex and Cigna doing together millions of mailings around Europe selling insurance product to American Express car members. So 
basically that's what I did for, for five years. I was managing, I mean, in Brussels, but also then at the country level, and all these direct mail campaigns that was were really interesting because again, then you work with the Italian team, you know, the Spanish team, the German team, you know, all the European marketing teams and trying to sell insurance products to American Express card members. So I learned branding, I learned dynamics between strategic partners like American Express and Cigna. Since I was at the headquarters, I also understood Cigna at the highest level. And then, you know, during direct response or direct mail campaigns, I really understood how little things can change the result of a campaign. It's absolutely amazing. Branding is kind of hard to measure it, you know, television ads or print ads. But when you do a mailing and, you know, and you segment that mailing, you really see the impact of little changes in your order form, in your tagline, you know, in your title, testimonials. I mean, what do you use to get people to react? So, you know, you're working with this behemoth of a company in Cigna and then have the opportunity to go actually head up the mail order catalog business for a company. So tell us about that. Yes. So in France, in the mid nineties, you know, the internet was barely pointing his nose, but nobody really cared. And I actually was hired by a company that was doing direct response television. They were number one in France in direct response television, short forms and long forms. And they were publicly traded. And by doing that, they build a huge database of 500,000 customers. So, Guillaume, this would be like our equivalent of Home Shopping Network, similar? Yes. So, Home Shopping, yes. So, in France at the time, we didn't have Home Shopping Networks. But what they were doing is short forms and long forms, which is like 40-second ads when you sell a product, a gadget, you know. So, these are advertisements. They are advertising, yes. Your shows. Okay, your, I get yeah. it now. That, thank yeah. you for clarifying. <laughs> so, they were you know, buying media to buy advertising and putting short forms and long form ads, which are infomercials. And, and remember, in France, we didn't have HSN and QVC and all those channels then. Actually, still to this day, not too many. There were shows on TVs, but not like that. So this company is the first one to do that in France. They're actually taking American products, like like Ginsu knives and these things, you know, and selling them in France and having huge success, selling 200,000 Ginsu knives, 300,000 of that, 400,000 of this. And then they have a database of 500,000 customers and they're saying, what am I going to do with this? So let's do a catalog. And they know that guy because we shared an agency that knows about direct marketing. You know, and he knows how to segment a database and to connect, you know, with an audience and to sell. If you can sell insurance products, you can really sell gadgets. So it's going to be a lot easier to get people's attention. <laughs> so they hired me and I had to launch the catalog from scratch, which was interesting. I was 30 years old and I had to figure it out. And I did it. I just started with like, you know, creating the first Excel spreadsheets and calculating the profitability per, you know, catalog, per page, per product and launched. And before you knew it, we were doing 12,000 orders per catalog. I was launching 350,000 catalogs every six weeks. And most importantly, I was connecting those catalogs with the print ads, the TV ads, and understanding the synergy between the different media. And remember, that was before Google. Before social media, but I did understand that it was about connecting the dots between different platforms, different channels, and creating an emotional connection with your audience so that they respond in 45 seconds to buy your product. So at age 30, you launch a catalog from scratch. It turns into this really tremendous success. And you started tying in all the pieces because there was no SEO yet. 
There's no search engine. You know, you're not doing ad traffic with people's mobile devices, but you started this concept of we're tying together different mediums to really develop this brand awareness and drive sales. I mean, pretty incredible that you were at the forefront of a lot of that work that was happening that became much broader than that as we move forward. Yes. What happened is I became an expert or considered an expert in France in the synergy between print, TV, and catalogs. And that's what really what people were playing. I include direct mail also in these other things. So that's what I would do when I was invited to speak to an event. I would speak about, okay, if you... If you have a catalog, you want to do this on TV, you want to do this in print because if maybe really all you want is to break even because it's going to boost your response rates on your catalog. And this is how you get your, you know, successful, sustainable and scalable business. Because as you know, print and TV is very volatile. You can do great and you can do horrible very quickly. But what I also realized that was the most important of everything is I understood the concept of emotional branding that actually pushed 20 years later that led to the creation of MedTech Momentum. And I did that by doing, by working on print ads, TV ads, where I would do a product, you know, I would launch a product and it was a gadget. Think about sharper image, you know, kind of this kind of product. And I would launch it. I decided I would do a direct response ad and I would be working with a production company on the ad. I would do the shoot. And then there is another entity that copies immediately. As soon as the product is a little bit successful, we see other companies doing it. And for some reason, we do really well. We sell, like I said, 150,000 units of that product between the different channels. And then this other company completely fails. And it seems like it's exactly the same ad. And I said, wow, there is magic somewhere here. What is it? And it's really emotional branding. And I would invite your audience to read a book called Emotional Branding by a guy called Marc, Marc Gobet, who is actually French. He had a big agency in Paris that worked with all the big brands around, you know, in, in the big French brands. And he really understood that people were, had to feel something to buy something. <laughs> they don't buy features, they buy a feeling. And so when you get that, you get a lot less obsessed with the design or the shade of gray. It's like, how can I get through to those people? And that's why those agencies that are really great, or creative directors or creative people, are so critical and so important. Steve Jobs really understood that because it's them. They have the magic, you know, just like, you know, a music producer is going to have it for his artist. You know, somebody needs to, needs to get it. So I understood that. It was just how do you reproduce it? And that's difficult. So that led, you know, to the next stages in my life when I went into the medtech space. So Guillaume, I love this. You're you're really talking about connecting people emotionally with a product. So let's take an example. Let's take one of those products that was in your catalog back in that day. You pick any product you want, but first just tell me what the product was. One of the products that we sold were electrostimulation devices. By electrostimulation devices, I mean, you know, pads that you stick on your body with a little you know, electronic device, and you, you push on the button and they start contracting your muscles. Yes. It's used by PTs and, you know, people in medical field, but it was brought to consumers, not really to cure an injury, but really to strengthen your muscles or lose weight or massage your body. There were all kinds of claims that were being made at the time. So there were companies selling electrostimulation devices, and really all they were talking about were, oh, it's 
it's great. It's going to contract your muscle. It's going to be a passive workout. And we have different frequencies and this and that. And we have the best machine in the market. Those are the features they were talking about. They were about. selling features, exactly. Yeah. How did you do it different? So the way I did it differently is I actually connected with a lady, which was a judo champion in France. You know, judo, yeah, art, the martial, martial arts. Martial arts, yeah, judo, the martial art form. Martial art. And she actually won an Olympic medal in the games. I think it was the Atlanta Games, if I remember correctly, in the mid-90s. But anyway, I managed to contact that person. She had a little bit of fame in France for that gold medal. And I said, I asked her, I said, do you use electrostimulation devices in your training? And she said, yes, I do. I mean, when I recover from an injury, it's a nice way to use that. I said, would you mind testifying that you actually use that? And of course, we had you know an agreement. And she said, okay. So we did a photo shoot, actually, where she trained. And she had a medal. And she testified to the fact that she was using the electrostimulation technology, you know, in recovery, especially to recover from injuries when she had an injury. So that was our testimonial on the print and TV ads. And at the same time, you know, on the rest of the page, we described what the device was, what it did, how much it cost, how you could get it. But that testimonial was the emotional branded side. She was a very friendly person with a very friendly face. She spoke very nicely when she was on television and she did that little testimonial. So we we built a trust factor. And of course, we did a huge success. So people liked her. They felt connected to her story. They're excited about how she's a a Olympic champion and they're hearing about how this can help their pain. Exactly. Way different story than saying, oh, we have these five different frequencies. Yeah, that will contract your muscles. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I see why that was so successful compared to companies that were simply focusing on the features. That makes a lot of sense. And so, Guillaume, thanks for giving us that example. One of the things I've heard in your story is, you know, you spent 30 years in America, but so far professionally, it sounds like a lot of your career was actually back in Europe. So how did you end up back in America and then ultimately launching your own company that's become wildly successful, but launching it when you were age 50? Yes. So during all these years, I was back in Europe because actually I was hired by Cigna. They like to send foreign nationals back to their own country because obviously we understand the American culture. We understand the European culture. We're going to do a good job. So I was kind of stuck in Europe, even though I love Europe. I love the quality of life. I love the food. I love all of this. But from a business standpoint, I really had that dream of coming back to America. So what I actually did is I grabbed the first opportunity that came along in 1998 and came back to the U.S. And for me, the U.S. was Florida. It was really Florida and Arizona, but more Florida. And I decided to come back to Florida and come back to Orlando. And what I did is I actually launched a company. So it was my first really entrepreneurial venture, which ended up being a very interesting story. So to make a long story short, you know, I, I just took some very unique product that was the, we had developed in Europe and decided I was going to sell them to... Home shopping networks like HSN and QVC. And I actually made other catalogs. And again, remember, I understood, you know, what was the story? How do you, how you brand, you know, a product? How do you connect with an audience? All these things were, were the concepts I, I was playing with. So I created that company in the late nineties and started selling products to HSN in, in Florida, to QVC and, and doing quite well. 
but I was doing so well that I was broke <laughs> because I did not understand cash flow. I understood PNL very well. <laughs> I did not understand that every time HSN or QMC would make an order, I would go broke because I had to finance this order for six months. And if you get an order every three weeks, how do you finance that? You know, so it's interesting when it connects with what you do for a living term, which is finance companies. But I didn't have, you know, an entity to finance me. So I did that for two years and really understood entrepreneurship and how you grow sales and how you build, you know, a brand. But really, I couldn't finance it. I was not capitalized for growth. So... That was kind of a failure, but the company, by the way, is still alive today. I sold it <laughs> two years later, but I decided it was too much of a struggle. I mean, I, I could not keep trying to find short-term financing solutions because nobody would finance me. I was new in America. I had studied for five, six years, but I was new as an entrepreneur in the U.S. Nobody would give me money. Nobody would pay attention to me. So it was all self-funding. It was too difficult. And at that point, when it reconnects with tennis, is I was playing tennis with a friend of mine at the RV Sports Place here in Orlando. Every Tuesday night, every Sunday we practice, every Tuesday we're competing against other clubs in Orlando. And that guy came to me and he was from the UK and he said, hey, mate, you know, I have the opportunity to start the US subsidiary of that French spine company called the Scientex. I think we should do it together. I really remember because I told him, I said, do you realize I have no experience in the medtech industry? He says, no, don't worry, you know, you know, I'll be selling, I'll be meeting physicians and surgeons and, and uh, selling distributors and you do your thing on the marketing side. You know, you're an entrepreneur, you understand marketing, we can do a great thing together. And sure enough, we did it. You know, we look for two computers and we look for an office and uh, I think our parent company, if they, if they listen to that podcast, they can relate to that. They were really wondering, who is this guy, <laughs> this French guy? that is in Orlando, that we don't know anything about. This English guy is hiring to launch a subsidiary. doesn't make any sense. And I think they were very doubtful that we were going to do a good job. But actually, we did a pretty good job because in a year of me applying my B2C techniques that I did for uh, you know 10 years, really, branding and, and connecting emotionally with an audience, I applied that to the B2B world of medtech marketing before you knew it, we signed 70 distributors around the country. Wow. And a year and a half later, we had the help, really the company raised $30 million from a private equity fund in New York. And the U.S. subsidiary became really the star of the group. Again, even though Santec was number two in France, number three in Europe, had distributors in 30 countries. But that's where the value is, as you, you may know, but, but you know, I'm sure because of what you do, but, you know, 70% of the medtech market is really American in the world because of pricing and, and volume, but especially pricing. So suddenly we were the stars and the company grew to, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 people. And that was a, you know, very interesting story. So that was how I learned the medtech space by launching, you know, with that guy, the U.S. subsidiary of the publicly traded company, build a network of distributors, work with surgeons, you know, on product development. I mean, trying to understand what they were looking for, working with the FDA to get those products, you know, through the approval process. I mean, really doing it all, you know, creating surgical techniques, you know, with surgeons and engineers, which are, 
know, big brochures, videos, I mean, websites, uh, you name it. And by do- doing that and interacting with this ecosystem, I became really in four or five years an expert in medtech marketing. So my title was executive vice president. And then after that, it was a chief marketing officer. But it was, I was just a medtech marketing guy connecting the dots between what was happening. So, Guillaume, you know, you started this in 2000, and that's the same time as Google is really coming on the scene. How did that impact everything? So, it changed really everything. Because if you were a student of marketing like I was uh, during those times, I quickly realized the internet bubble that was taking place in 2099 was not just for, for B2C, but it was also going to impact you know B2B companies. And also, the sudden, uh, it was not just a question of having many websites to go to, which initially were just electronic brochures, so they didn't bring much to the equation. But it was more about Google that was completely changing the way consumers, including patients, physicians, distributors, hospital executives, everybody in the healthcare system could actually access information. And suddenly the, the, you know, the paradigm was changing. That's when I, you know, I, I always talk about a new world order in the world of communication, which is really what it is. It's not companies, you know, controlling the narrative from top to bottom. At that point, it's bottom up. You know, people actually could find the information that they were looking for. You want to, to find a white paper, you're going to find it. You want to find a video about a surgical technique, you're going to find it. You want to see a, a you know, a video about a, you know, your favorite doctor, you may find it. So, and companies were looking at that and kind of ignoring it. I mean, they, they were, they were, they were just saying, okay, I need a good website. Hopefully it will give people the information that they need. But I was looking at that and saying, no, it's more than that. It's more than a website. It needs to be dynamic. It needs to engage. It needs to be emotionally branded. It needs to be updated constantly so people come back to it, you know? So, that was really, uh, that was really, uh, we are not talking so much about blogs then, but it was just information on the site. And then what, what we, I was doing is, is a lot of, you know, uh, um, email marketing campaigns. So I was beginning to do this, which was new also, you know, it was not just mailing your newsletter, but creating a newsletter that you could email to your audience. So we were kind of one of the first companies at, at Soundtex to create a newsletter that we turned into a PDF you know, mail that PDF to everybody that we knew and hope that people read it. And I was very surprised because I thought nobody read it because <laughs> we didn't have MailChimp and Constant Contact and HubSpot and all these things then. So I didn't know until I would go to a trade show and people would go, oh, well, we saw your newsletter. It was great. We saw this, we saw that. But the one point that was unique about our newsletter is I was always make sure it was about people, not just technologies. So the first, the cover was always about, you know, the president of the company addressing the market. Then it was about company news, you know, and company news could be surgeons inventing a new technology. It could be an employee doing something. It could be an R&D engineer talking about what he's working on. It could be a birthday, whatever it is, an event. But it had to be people. People relate to people. We are social animals, you know. We, so I got that and, and give the, gave that to the newsletters. So, and then after that, it was, okay, we got a 510K on that new product, or we get a new patent, or we are launching that, or, you know, uh, discover, you know, this. But I was balancing very carefully, you know, the emotional side always with the technical side. 
And I think that was part of the success that we experienced, you know, with Sanitex until the acquisition. Because it was at the end of the day, it was acquired. And so as it got acquired, you now had an opening in your schedule. Yes. So once Sanitex went through a successful liquidity event and was was acquired, I really thought, I said, I think I got it. <laughs> I need to really start, you know, my own company. So I, I didn't think about an agency yet. I said, I can do this in spine, you know, in, in, in with medical technologies. I really know it inside out. So it was in 2006. And we actually raised some money, $3 million in financing and, and launched a new spine company. The idea was to develop the technologies of the future. So, which was really about moving away from fusion and preserving motion in spine, you know, and we call it motion preservation technologies. So artificial, uh, you know, disc processes and dynamic rods and all these kind of things. We did that. And again, we did very well. You know, we launched the company based in the U- US, subsidiary in, in Switzerland, doing R&D. We had a nice team, you know, with some great surgeons coming on board with us. And, you know, the idea was to go, you know, 3 million uh, seed financing, Series A, you know, 809, and then, you know, move on. Well, of course, I didn't know the markets were going to crash. <laughs> the Series A became very, very complicated and uh, it actually didn't take place. Uh, it was, we had a deal. It was three hours away from a $5 million raise, February 2009, and everything stopped. The day of the signing, just imagine what you go through. You, you had, a, you know, the lawyers have already met the papers already they are on the table. You're waiting to sign. It doesn't take place. I think it's important for me to share that because people think it's all nice and easy. It's not. You have to go, you know, through the tribulations of successes and failures, you know, to understand <laughs> how to minimize the failures and maximize the successes. Guillaume, part of the story that I tell, especially to our potential entrepreneurs out there, is that often what we see is the success after somebody's already gone through those valleys. And I love being able to say that I became an overnight success after a decade of grinding. My first three businesses were mediocre at best. It wasn't until my fourth that it really went nationwide and became tremendously successful and and then kind of launched onto even bigger things beyond that. But I think it's so important for those would-be entrepreneurs out there to realize when they're in those difficult days that that's far more normal than it sure feels like when you're looking out at the Steve Jobses and the Bill Gateses and Mark Zuckerbergs, and all you're seeing is this crazy success. These companies, it feels like these companies became multi-billion dollar companies overnight. That's You don't see that the norm is to go through some really, really challenging times as an entrepreneur. And so if you're in the midst of that, just know, you know you're hearing it from Guillaume, you're hearing it from me. That's very normal. And one of the most critical things is to fight through and push through. And Yes, I think it's the difference between successful people and successful people. It's not the number of failures. It's how you react to them. It's do you learn something from them and you're better because of them and you leverage them. I mean, I like when I tell, you know, my clients today at MedTech Momentum that are actually going through a fundraising and that tell my story of my failed $5 million raise because I learned so much, you know, from it, much more than I learned from a very easy $3 million raise, you know, uh, that I did initially. And you need to prepare for it constantly. 
So I do think, you know, you learn actually more from failures than you learn from success. It's true in sports and it's true in business. And if you're an entrepreneur, you'd better enjoy the journey and the failures as much as the success. You're not going to enjoy the failures, but you're going to enjoy coming out of them and turning back and say, wow, look at what we did. Look at where we were a year ago, two years ago, and how we got out of it and look where we are now. And that's super exciting. This is where you get, you know, the joy from entrepreneurship, I feel. One of my mentors always said, Guillaume, that business is a game that can only be played, but never won. We can have a great quarter. We can have a great shot. Yeah. But you just keep playing the game. And I resonate with that. No matter what happens, you're very stressed. Even if you get to a point where you don't have any cash flow problems, cash flow is good, you're secure. But you're still worried because all suddenly, you know, you have a bad quarter. And all markets is changing, or COVID is arriving, or something is happening, and your world is upside down. So it's something else. It's not the same level of stress that you get when you start, but it's definitely a different kind of stress. And actually, it might, might even be worse because maybe you don't have the money pressure, but you have the life of a bunch of people depend on you. That's right. <laughs> and you care about them, and That's you want right. them to be successful. And, and you know that if the company doesn't do well, it's going to affect them. So uh, somebody told me once, he says that um, a successful entrepreneur is somebody who enjoy living in uncertainty. And it's really true. If you enjoy living in uncertainty, you're going to love entrepreneurship. If you need security, forget about it. That's <laughs> Don't right. Don't work with Cigna. That's <laughs> you know, right. It's going to be much more secure or at least give you a feeling of security because there is actually no security. But yeah, I really believe in that. And so your Series A, three hours before it's supposed to close, it doesn't close. And what ultimately happened with that company? Yeah. So when I, I flew back, because the signature was actually supposed to be in Geneva, Switzerland, in the trip back, I was like, you know, doing numbers and brainstorming. And I'm thinking, we're going to go bankrupt. I mean, we're dead. How we, we thought we had $5 million on the account next week and we have nothing. Well, we actually managed. We stopped all growth initiatives. <laughs> we focus on our existing clients. We stop all our short-term R&D initiative, make sure we finalize the products we were developing. And we, we starting, you know, growing, but at a much, much lower scale. We just control growth to protect profitability. It was all about staying profitable and cash flow positive. And we did have a partner that kind of helped us, you know, at key moments from a cash flow standpoint. But the result is that we actually, the strategy became less about, you know, organic growth, but more about strategic partnerships. So what we ended up doing is signing a distribution agreement with Striker, a distribution agreement with K2M. So several distribution agreements with distributors around the world. I mean, in Brazil, in Thailand, in the Middle East, in everywhere. And this way we were able, with our limited finances, to find a solution. Now we are in 2013, and Eden Spine has this distribution agreement with different companies around the world. It's growing, you know, slowly but surely. It's cash flow positive, but I realize there is really no future at that point. So we did manage to have a successful liquidity event with a couple of spine companies around the world. But really, at that point, I was 49 years old, and I had to decide what was my next move. And I looked at it, I looked at my life, really. It was a big life moment. And I said, what do I know how to do well? Well, it seems that I know how to create momentum in the medtech space. 
using connecting the dots between B2B, B2C, and what I've learned. So momentum seems to be a keyword in my life. And I do it in medical, in the medical space, healthcare. But medtech, I like that sound. You know, I've dealt a lot with you know, medical technologies, medical devices. I get that. So I'm just going to create a company that I call MedTech Momentum. But we're not going to be just an agency. We're going to be more than agency. We're actually going to be a MedTech company that happens to sell marketing services. Very different. We understand those companies from the outside. I used to be my clients. That's what I always tell them. I used to be you. So I know what it is when you're audited by the FDA. I know what it is to get to find a notified body to get your CE mark. I know how, how it is to you know brief your sales team to launch a product. So we go much further than your next brochure or your next website. We really understand what you're about. So this is what MedTech Momentum is about. But most importantly, what also makes us unique is that we understand the internet and social media revolution. And we integrate the concept of emotional branding and story branding, because it's all about your story, as we said at the beginning, to develop successful marketing strategies. So that's what we do. That's the angle is, you know, you come here, you're going to see bones. I mean, you see some behind me, you know, you can see bones, you see implants, you see devices, you see all kinds of things that you'll never see in an agency. Because really, we're not an agency. We have, we have 28 people you know, doing creative work, but we are much more than that. We understand market dynamics, market conditions, and we build you know, marketing plans to, to help you achieve your goals. Oh, and by the way, yeah, of course, we're going to do your websites, your brochure, surgical technique, manage our social media platforms, launch your PR campaign, make sure you have a great SEO strategy. You know, shoot your videos and get you what you need, which is, you know, you want awareness and you want leads and growth and value creation. I mean, that's really the key. So that's how it all happened. And of course, initially, it was, we, I didn't have 28 people. I had four. <laughs> it was me doing the strategy and the account management. It was a graphic designer, you know, man, being the brand manager, really, of all the companies we worked with, web developer, creating the website, and a social media manager. So I wanted to go from the get-go with a team of people that could kind of take over. Say, okay, we get it. We can do it. We understand you. We can develop your strategy and we can execute it. And then from that, you know, now we've helped close to 130 companies. And that's why we have about, you know, 28, you know, employees <laughs> and we're growing. And you're bringing some of the most important medical developments to the world. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And it's got to be rewarding also when your head hits the pillow at night to know your company is helping to ultimately save lots and lots of lives around the world. I mean, that's incredible. Yes. You know, when I am very happy that we started this podcast with me, start talking about Normandy, because my father, as an oncologist, Really, you know, talked a lot every lunch. I mean, every time we had lunch or dinner, it was saving people's lives, basically. You know, being so happy because he saved somebody's life. And, he, and then he knew them in our community. You know, Caen is a small town, 200,000 people. And for me, that's how I grew up. He said, what you do actually saves lives. And if you look at our core values at Metech Momentum, one of them is marketing saves lives. Hmm. And I really believe that because if we help a company launch a successful product that is impacting patient care, and this product is being sold in the US and around the world, we're actually saving lives. So I want to make sure my team understands that because that's what 
turns me on. You know, if you look at our walls, which you cannot see right here, but you would see an appian design that was drawn by an engineer, actually with a surgeon, and then next to it is a picture of a prototype, and next to it is a picture of an X-ray. Is that's what we do? We go from ideas, you know, conception to commercialization, and of course, we do it at different stages and different level of companies, from small to the majors. But that's what is exciting. Is to me, it's very rewarding to think that we're helping those companies succeed. That's what I want to do the rest of my life. You know, Guillaume, it, it really sounds to me like MedTech Momentum was the result of you throughout your career, really witnessing the computer, internet. SEO, social media revolutions, and then tying that all together with your passion for marketing and for saving lives. I mean, it's just an incredible story. And so it sounds like you take care of really broad-based healthcare. What are the sizes of companies that your team can best support? Yeah, so it is interesting. We work with companies of all sizes. From, you know, pre-revenue companies that are still in clinical stage and getting ready to either launch their product or raise money or, but they do need a brand and they need a story. So they're already talking to us. To, you know, mid-sized companies that are, you know, early adopters or in early majority and they are in, you know, accelerated growth mode. We find that many companies that are three to seven years old, you know, grew very rapidly initially based on the network, but then suddenly they are kind of struggling because now, now they really need a marketing engine. And they say, holy moly, <laughs> we don't have a real brand. We don't have a real story. We don't have a real SEO presence. We need help. And then we come in and we, we make sure we leverage everything they do well. And then we add what we can to make sure their story is communicated to the masses. So that's for the, I would say the mid-size. And then the, you know, the bigger companies, you know, the majors or the others, for them, it's a different type of approach where they usually have a specific need. Like they are launching a new product and they need a story for that product. It's really about the messaging strategy. How does it integrate in the big picture of, of who we are? So we can help on that. We also have many companies that are in MA, in, in merger and acquisition mode. So we work a lot with MA branding strategies. As we know, you know, most M&A you know, are done because of financial reasons or portfolio, product portfolio reasons, but really they fail because of story or marketing reasons. So the, the, the tribes, you know, the multiple tribes do not become one tribe. And how do you do that? Well, it's about core values, mission, vision, you know, and getting all that right and building a new story around that new tribe. So we do that a lot because, as you know, in our space, there is a lot of MA activity. That's also an angle that is very, very interesting you know, to us, very strategic. Excellent. Well, Guillaume, this has been incredible. We now get to move into my favorite part of the show where I get to ask two questions. The first is the question everybody wants to know. And really, it's the random obscure thing that I want to know. And then the next question will be the real question everyone wants to know. So my question for you today, very early in the show, you actually talked about you learned American songs before you knew English and you would sing those American songs. And I'm just curious, what was your favorite or the first or what was one of those iconic songs that you remember singing in English before you actually knew English? Yes. So I could definitely tell you that Ray Charles is the man. <laughs> what did I say? You know, I mean... 
I fell in love with, it's, it's again funny for a little kid from Normandy, you know, falling in love with the blues uh, and Rachel and James Brown and all those guys. And still to this day, if I go to Chicago, I go to Legends, you know, to listen to Buddy Guy. If he's there or his friends, <laughs> that are probably hanging out there. So yes, that was one of the songs. I mean, and then of course, and some of the James Brown sound was very, very big for me very early as well. I was as Elvis, especially when Elvis died in 78. That was, certainly I watched all of his movies and I discovered really Elvis and I was, oh my God, this is incredible. So I had this connection with the deep, you know, I was from deep France, Normandy, and I was connecting with the deep South of the, with the blues <laughs> and soul music and Motown and Elvis, which is uh, kind of strange when you think about it. <laughs> it's incredible to me. Some of your first English was actually coming from Ray Charles songs. That's just, it's great. Yeah. It's great. So, uh, Guillaume, the real question that I'm sure some of our listeners want to know, you know, maybe they are running a medical company, maybe they're investing in medical companies and they have relationships with those leadership teams. And if they want to get in touch with you at MedTech Momentum, What's the best way to do that? And one of the things you said that I I think is so wonderful is that you actually want to talk with them personally, that you want that personal connection. So what's the best way for them to reach out and make that connection? Yes. So the easiest is obviously to go to our website, which is uh, medtechmomentum.com. So here you have all the information. But if you want to reach me directly, just type Guillaume. at medtechmomentum.com, Guillaume at medtechmomentum.com. And I'm sure, you know, Tom, you'll put a link to this, uh, you know, with the podcast. Uh, because I do, I'm very serious when I say I do want to speak with you. It's not about your next website or your next brochure or your next, uh, you know, SEO or press release. I really want to know if we're going to work together, why you're doing what you do, what's your vision, what you are trying to achieve with the company. And if we don't get that right, there is no way we can have a you know a successful marketing strategy. You're gonna have a nice product, you know, maybe a nice brochure, and then what? You're gonna have all the features, and you're not gonna have your Olympic winning judo story to take it and actually have people care and want to use it. So Guillaume, this has been tremendous. So listeners, again, that's medtechmomentum.com. You can reach out there or you can go to Guillaume at medtechmomentum.com. And that is Guillaume is G-U-I-L-L-A-U-M-E at medtechmomentum.com. And we will put those in our show notes, uh, whether you listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, just go to our show notes. You'll be able to link over to Guillaume there. And Guillaume, thank you so much. I absolutely love your story. It's tremendous to have you here as a business owner. So thanks for everything you're doing. Well, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to share my story, which is pretty unique and pretty strange in many ways. But if I can inspire a few people, you know, I would be very happy. So good. So good. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.